Hi, it's Raghu Marcus, and I'm here to introduce another wonderful podcast from Ramdas Here and Now. Uh, this one's uh, got some fabulous stories around uh, karma, and Ramdas is elucidating that concept a little bit uh, to connect it with our daily lives. And he does such a great job, as usual, around that. Before I get into a little bit more of an introduction, um, I, I do want to say to everybody, make sure you're... Uh, we have this wonderful new website, which is just about... Uh, I don't think there's any more bugs left. The bugs have left. And uh, just go to ramdas.org. And what I'm trying to say is do sign up, on, get on the email list because uh, there are wonderful offerings uh, for, for free uh, that we do from courses to uh, live streams and so on. And we did one, we did a, a live stream weekend virtual retreat at the end of August, this past uh, August. And uh, it was called Wise Hope. And it just had so much breath, so much uh, profundity <laughs> uh, around cultivating the kinds of perspectives and practices and uh, new stories, shall we say, that we could might tell ourselves uh, in this pandemic uh, season, which seems to be uh, evolving to part two at this point, and this is the fall of 2020. And, uh, of course, all of the other stressors, with the racial justice and economic and political so this Wise Hope, which featured just some fabulous teachers, Sharon Salzberg and Roshi Joan Halifax and Krishna Das and Bob Thurman and Valerie Kaur and, uh, uh, oh, and Krishna Das and Trevor Hall did a fabulous concert uh, w one of those evenings. So I, I'm sure I'm leaving out uh, people here and there, but... Um, it, it is worth uh, checking out. Just go to ramdas.org. I think it'll be, when this podcast goes up, it'll be a couple of days after that that it'll be actually available in uh, downloadable. So you can get it as a video download or as an audio or both. And whatever you do in that aspect, of course, it was all free when it was, uh, when the retreat ran. And now with these downloads, it enables us to, get help from everybody to support continuing to make these uh, all these events uh, free. Uh, so do go and sign up uh, and get, there's a beautiful newsletter uh, that uh, our own Rachel Fisher puts out uh, every week or two that just gives all sorts of resources for resilience. So, stories of karma. Uh, I love this because... Well, first of all, Ramdas tells several outstanding stories. One is the death of Mogalana. And I'm not going to tell you anything about this story. You'll listen to Ramdas tell the story. 
there's a couple others, and there's one from our uh, Satsang member, Larry Brilliant. And Larry, uh, you probably see him all over CNN because he has been working uh, inside of the medical community around pandemics forever. He helps uh, get rid of smallpox in India, and that's what this story, it, it really... Um, it really addresses the a karma in such a living, breathing way. Uh, and uh, you might have heard this story before. It's a famous story. It was in Miracle of Love, Ram Dass's book. But it is well worth hearing again. And from the point of view of karma, what Larry's karma was to, to get involved in, in doing what he did and... I mean, he almost left India. He thought, I'm gone. I'm not, I'm not into gurus. And it's, it's quite a wonderful story. So uh, in this, of course, Ramdas talks about, who's an you know, expert psychologist from his days of yore. And then um, he talks about all, all the uh, personality stuff. We directly attribute to childhood experiences, or I would say, uh, and he says, of course, to heredity, and I would say to the causes and conditions in in the particular zone we may be in, including your family zone, your friends in your school, and society, and political state, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, uh, these these influences that we can see in our immediate environment, on a day-to-day basis. And the internal, he says, the internal quality of our predicament determines the outward universe we are living in. So these are all of the different ways in which we make up, uh, uh, it's a set of experiences, and around these experiences, we create a storyline of who we think we are. It's my thing I've been talking about on Mind Rolling, on the Be Here Now Network, the, other, the podcast that I do, other podcasts that I do about mini-me, how we are so absolutely involved in protecting, defending that mini-me story that we have created and believe so outrageously one billion percent it's all true and our thoughts are true. And so around these, he says, around these experiences, so we create a storyline who think who we think we are and how we think it all is. That's something we think we know how it all is. And then um, as Ram Dass says, of course, no scenario you have created about your own life is anywhere near how it really all is. Right. So, really, of course, the point of practice and being on the path and moving to a place where we can be of some service to our fellow humans and be kinder and more compassionate, at some point, you stop creating the stories or you stop taking them so seriously, as, as he puts it. And I, I would have to say that is the biggest thing that happens to a person on the path over time. A spaciousness happens. You stop taking yourself so seriously. The stuff you tell yourself, you immediately laugh at. I mean, that's why Ramdas's sense of humor was so uh, 
so incredible, absolutely incredible. And what it created uh, was really an expansiveness that changes one's whole uh, perspective. And, um, yeah, so I think that that is so extraordinarily uh, important. Just absolutely looking at that story and what was created in terms of the conditioning and causes from the early part of one's life all the way to the day-to-day experiences we have now. And then you kind of take a look and you go, well, wait a minute, this is, there's something unfolding here. And it's, it's an unfolding that um, is pretty perfect for what I need. You start to have that sense of, it, it gets you a little bit free of the way in which day-to-day, sometimes because of tremendous suffering, circumstances, there's all sorts of way, ways in which we really take this on and uh, this stuff on, and it becomes who, who we think we are. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a cage and, and very difficult to get out of it at, at, at one point or another. But if you start looking, that's from the karmic point of view, there's a, there is, the stuff that is perfect what we've been getting presented to us in order to free whatever that might be in this lifetime. Because if you didn't do it in this lifetime, it's going to have to happen in another one. And you start looking, and Ramdas calls it, it's a mosaic that's unfolding before my eyes. And then he, he gets into, and this is something we've talked about a lot in different episodes uh, here and mind rolling or in the retreats that we've done. And it's around karma and grace being the same. And uh, Ramdas asked Maharaji, are karma and grace the same? Right? Deep thought. He said, I'm not talking about this in public. <laughs> That's what he said. And as the years have gone on, Ramdas and I have talked about this and, and others from the satsang. And I have talked about it with Siddhima, who was our Indian mother, just left a few years ago. And basically what she told me is, they are the same, but that is not a rational thought. You cannot think that you know that. There is no thinking when at the place which they are all the same is beyond duality. She didn't say it in those words, but that's what she meant. And what she did say plainly was, you operate, you carry on your life as if they are not the same and you do what you need to do, the karma part. And you work with it. And uh, basically another thing she said, which she didn't say in words, was, of course grace is there. And of course, you're not alone, right? The events of your, your life are unfolding as a result of both karma and grace. Your own life is just another chapter in the unfolding of the dance. That's a famous Ramdas line. 
And he's, uh, again, encourages more than once during the talk that we can absolutely let things unfold and have enough spaciousness and enough lightness of being um, to see the real dynamic of the play of of the universe called Lila. Yes, yes, karma. So uh, please do enjoy this talk. It's, uh, again, another wonderful presentation from Ramdas. Uh, and this is a little bit unique on karma. I don't think I've done one of these. I don't remember lately. But uh, it go to Ramdas here and now on BeHereNowNetwork.com, which is chock full. There's another. I got chock full of nuts today. Um, reminds me of um, coffee. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to explain that out of mind rolling another time, but please do go to Be Here Now Network and catch not just Ramdas, but this thing I do, mind rolling. Uh, There's uh, David Nickturn has been doing these wonderful podcasts uh, around this new book that he wrote, uh, which really takes in some important topics around livelihood and... um, right livelihood and dealing with money and all of that. So check that out and we will see you next week. Ram Ram. I think over the years that I have um, first through drugs and then through Maharaji and then through meditation come to have a deeper and deeper sense of reincarnation and karma. The way in which I look at the events of my life, the perceptual vantage point has significantly shifted over time. So that I am much more inclined now to see the events of my life as, as an unfolding before me of a lawful set of events. and see it as connected across much broader time perspectives than I previously did. A lot of our personality stuff we tend to attribute to our early experiences, childhood experiences, or to heredity in the sense of biological heredity, evolution. And many of the events that occur in the universe around us, we tend to interpret as due to influences that we can see in the immediate environment. But my perspective is so vast about all this in my own life now, and it's just happened very subtly along the way that it can include a nuclear holocaust, or it can include the end of the universe, it can include any of it. It just all falls into place, and it doesn't throw me or confuse me or upset me. It's all, yeah, right, it's an unfolding. And I can experience events as the working out of karma, and I can see the way in which what I see in the universe is determined by my desires and my needs. If we were each to describe who is here, we would each be seeing a different scene. And we're seeing a scene dependent on our own desires and our own needs. 
If you and I walk down the street together and you are full of hunger and I am full of fear, you will notice on the street restaurants and I will notice threatening people. And we will each have lived in our own universe, which is a different universe. My universe was full of th potentially threatening people and yours was full of McDonald's and pizza restaurants. And it seemed like we both walked down the same street and yet we didn't walk down the same street. And in that way, the internal quality of our, our own predicament determined the outward universe we are living in. Now it gets even more complex and far out and I'd like to read you this story. I've read this, here I go again. I would like to read you this story. It's good for the second reading also, for those of you. <laughs> That's another way of saying it. And this is called, it's, uh, it's, um, it's called The Death of Moggallana. It's a Buddhist story. And it's translated from the Dhammapada and from Buddhaghosa's commentary on stanza 137. And the stanza reads as follows. Who striketh him that striketh not, and harmeth him that harmeth not, shall quickly punishment incur, some one among a list of ten, or cruel pain, or drear old age, and failure of the vital powers, or some severe and dread disease, or madness him shall overtake. Or from the king calamity, or calumny shall be his lot, or he shall see his kinsfolk die, or all his wealth shall disappear. Or conflagration shall arise, and all his houses sweep away, and when his frame dissolves in death, in hell the fool shall be reborn. This doctrinal instruction was given by the, the teacher, the Buddha, while dwelling at the bamboo grove, and it was concerning the elder, Moggallana the Great. For on a certain occasion, those who were members of other sects held a meeting and took counsel as follows. Brethren, do you know the reason why the alms and honor given to the monk Otama? This is now another sect, not the Buddhas, Buddhist sect. Another sect was holding a meeting and they took counsel as follows. Brethren, do you know the reasons why the alms and honors given the monk Otama have increased? Why is Buddha getting more bread these days? No, we do not, do you? Yes, truly we know. It is solely due to Moggallana the Great, for he goes to heaven and questions the deities concerning their previous karma, and then he returns and tells it to men. In other words, you say, why am I doing this? And he says, just a second, I'll find out. And he goes up and he asks the gods and comes back. It is by having done thus and so that you now are enjoying such great glory or such great hell. Also, he asks those who were born in hell concerning their karma and returning, he tells it to men. It is by having done such and such evil deeds that they now experience so great misery. And the people, when they have heard him, shower alms and attention upon him. If we can only kill him, the alms and the honor that now go to him will be ours. The suggestion met with universal favor. And it was unanimously agreed that in some way or other, Moggallana should be killed. They stirred up their supporters and obtained from them a thousand pieces of money. And summoning some red-handed highwayman, they said, an elder called Moggallana the Great is dwelling at Black Rock. Go thither and kill him.
and they gave them the money. The highwayman greedily took the money and went and surrounded the elder's house in order to kill him. The elder, perceiving that he was surrounded, got out through the keyhole and escaped. Having that day failed to find the elder, they came again on another day and surrounded him again. Then the elder pierced the peak roof and sprang into the sky. In this manner, neither during the forepart nor during the middle part of the month were they able to capture the elder. But when it drew towards the latter part of the month, the elder found himself held back by his previous karma and could not flee. Then the highwayman captured him and broke his bones into bits of the size of rice grains. And when they supposed he was dead, they threw him into a thicket and departed. But the elder thought, <laughs> I will see the teacher before I pass into nirvana. And swathing himself about with meditation, as with a bandage, and thus stiffening his body, he went to the teacher by way of the air, and having done obeisance, he said, Reverend Sir, I am about to pass into nirvana. You are about to pass into nirvana, Mogalana? Yes, Reverend Sir. From where? From Black Rock. In that case, Mogalana, recite to me the doctrine before you go, for I have no other disciples such as you. I will do so, Reverend Sir. And having done obeisance to the teacher, he sprang into the sky. And when he had performed various miracles, such as the elder Saraputta did on the day he passed into nirvana, he recited the doctrine. Having done obeisance to the teacher, he went to the forest of Black Rock and passed into nirvana. Now, the report that the elder had been murdered by highwaymen spread all over the continent of India. And King Ajatasattu dispatched spies to hunt for them. And as the highwaymen happened to be drinking together in a tavern, one of them struck his comrade and threw filth into his hand. How now, you ill-mannered dog, said the other threateningly. Why did you throw filth into my hand? And why, you rascally highwayman, did you give the first blow to Mogalana the Great? And how do you know I hit him? While they were thus quarreling, the spies heard and arrested them and informed the king. And the king had the highwayman summoned into his presence and said to them, Did you kill the elder? Yes, sire. Who instigated you? The naked ascetics, sire. Then the king seized 500 naked ascetics and buried them together with 500 highwaymen up to their navels in pits dug in the royal court. Then he covered them with straw and set fire. And after thus burning them, he took iron plows and plowed them into bits. In the lecture hall, the priests raised the discussion, saying, Mogolana the Great met with a death unworthy of him. Then came the teacher and inquired, Priests, what is the subject of your present discussion? They told him, Priests, the death of Mogolana the Great was unsuited to his present existence but suited to his karma of a previous existence. Reverend Sir, what was this karma of his? And he told the whole story as follows. There was once upon a time at Benares a certain high caste youth who took care of his father and his mother, himself grinding and cooking their food and performing all the other work of the house. And they said to him, 
Child, you are tiring yourself out with trying single-handed to do the work of the house in addition to your work in the forest. We will get you a wife. Mother, father, I do not need anything of that sort. As long as you live, I will take care of you with my own hands. But in spite of his repeated refusals, they insisted and they got him a wife. The girl waited on the old people for a few days, but finally got so that she could not bear the sight of them and angrily said to her husband, it is impossible to stay in the same house with your parents. But when she found out that he would not listen to her, she chose a time when he was out of the house to scatter the floor over with rubbish and the scum of rice gruel. And on his coming home and asking her, what means all this? She said, it is the work of those blind old people. They do nothing but make the house dirty. It's impossible to get on with them. And so as the result of her incessant talk, this great soul, although he had fulfilled the perfections, broke with his parents and said to her, very well, I know what to do with them. Then he fed them and said, mother, father, your relatives are expecting you in such and such a place, we will go to meet them. Placing them in a cart, he went along with them until he had come to the heart of the forest. On arriving there, he put the reins into the hands of his father and said, father, take the reins, the oxen will follow the track. I will get down on the ground, for there are highwaymen hereabouts. And going off a little way, he altered the tone of his voice and uttered a cry like highwaymen when they make an attack. While his mother and father, who heard the cry and supposed it came from robbers, were calling out, Child, you are young, leave us and save yourself. He pounded them and slew them, all the time uttering the robber yell. Leaving their bodies in the forest, he returned home. When the teacher had related this bygone occurrence, he continued and said, Priests, the fruit of this one deed of Mogalana's was torment in hell for hundreds of thousands of years and death by pounding in a hundred existences, as suited the nature of his crime. Mogalana's death is therefore suited to his karma. Also, the 500 highwaymen and the 500 heretics have met with a suitable death for doing harm to my innocent son. For they who harm innocent persons are liable to calamities and misfortunes of ten different sorts. Having thus shown the connection, he taught them the doctrine by means of the stanza, who striketh him that striketh not, and harmeth him that harmeth not, shall quickly punishment incur some one among a list of ten, or cruel pain, or a drear old age, and failure of the vital powers, or some severe and dread disease, or madness him shall overtake. Or from the king calamity or calumny shall be his lot, or he shall see his kinsfolk die, or all his wealth shall disappear. Or conflagration shall arise, and all his houses sweep away. And when his frame dissolves in death, in hell the fool shall be reborn. Now, here's a letter to uh, Menindra, the man I was talking to you about earlier today, Buddhist teacher. It's from a woman in Australia who was in um, Belson, I guess, concentration camp. I think that was the one. She um, came close to death three times. When all of her family was murdered, she tried to commit suicide, did not succeed. It's just this paragraph. 
A few weeks ago, I was sorting out old files with notes, stories, thoughts, etc., which I had written down over the years. Reading through them before destroying them, I was more amazed than I have ever been in my life. So much misery and unhappiness. How is it possible that any human being can live for 55 years through so much unhappiness? Fear, despair, morbidity, depression, suffering, pain, devastation, and not be utterly destroyed by it. I must have been stronger than I thought. And when I now look back over the past four years since the first time I came to you in India, life has just been so simple and serene that it is unbelievable. After reaching the first stage in my mental development, this is within the Buddhist tradition, I lost all my depressions, headaches, fears, and nightmares. After reaching the second stage during my second visit to you, I don't even understand anymore what all the fuss was about all those 55 years of my life. I now just live life as it is, and as it comes, and as a whole, in calmness and equanimity, and I am happy and content. Sometimes I meditate intensely, sometimes I don't medita meditate at all, but you see, in a way, my whole life is one total meditation. Somehow nothing seems to be able to touch me anymore. It's like living on two levels. The outer level will make conversation with people and say the right things at the right time, and under that is the second level, where there is an untouched stillness and quiet attention and peace. She says, I'll tell you a little story which will show you what an enormous success you are as a teacher. A few months ago, the man whom I love more than any other man in the world, and who was for the past 17 years as close to me as any man and woman can be, died rather suddenly. If that had happened before the teaching in 1975, I'm sure it would have completely destroyed me. I would have finally committed suicide. But now I just felt a little sad about losing the man's close love for me, and I missed his companionship. But for the rest, no. A stone thrown in the water would have caused more ripples than his death did to me. He's just finished his life trip and may already have started another one. I don't know that, but apart from a certain personal loss of his companionship, there's no upset or conflict with me about his death. Now, I put those two things together so that you and I can explore the way, take that woman's life, and each of us is one of these lives, the fact that she went through such incredible hell and then awakened so that the, all of the hell became a teaching for her. That is all a lawful unfolding of a particular life storyline. And anyway, along the place, like she's busy thanking him, the teacher, but he didn't do it. He was merely being what he was being as the teacher. And she was in India because that's where she had to be, and that's what happened. And all of it is just what happened. And if you will look at your life and the drama that seems so real all the time and see it as an unfolding of a set of experiences which are merely the result of past events, just an unfolding, an unwinding of these events, very slowly unwinding, clearly, and appreciate them that way, your ability to get lost in them 
starts to lessen a great deal. This is a, um, an article that I've carried around for a long time, and um, I was just shown it again. It's a, it's, many of you read it. It's about a little boy, Edward de Moro Castro, who was dying, I think, of uh, leukemia. He knew death was near, and he asked his mother to turn off his oxygen. He died smiling, glad he lived through his seventh birthday and believing his spirit would return as a healthy boy. He knew for months he was dying of leukemia, and a tape recording he made last year said he welcomed death, quote, because I'm so sick. When you're dead in a spirit in heaven, you don't have all the aches and pains. I don't feel good, and I'm too sick to live on. The pain, he said, was like something shocks you, like a streak of lightning. The son of a Brazilian diplomat, Edouard told family friend Kim Downey in the recording that he would live until August 12th, his seventh birthday, because I prayed to God, after my birthday or maybe a week later, I will die because I would like to die. Finally, he said, Mother, turn off the oxygen. I don't need it anymore. I turned it off. Then he held my hand. A big smile came to his face, and he said, It's time. Then he left. In the tape recording, Edouard said he believed in reincarnation. I'll come back a healthy boy. I don't know why I chose to come back into this lifetime sick, but when you come back, you don't remember why you chose it, he said. He's seven. He imagined heaven was sort of like if you went through a passageway or walked through a tunnel into another galaxy. It is sort of like walking into your brain, he said. You've left your body and are living in clouds. Your spirit is there. It's like walking into your mind. Uh, when I die, I'd like to be buried in a garden of flowers. We each have a set of experiences. Around those experiences, we create a scenario or a storyline of who we think we are and how we think it all is. But I'll tell you, there's no scenario you've created about your own life that is anywhere near how it is. I know that when I was at Harvard, that was 63, 73, 10, 16 years ago, I had absolutely no conception, not only of how my life would turn out in the external forms of it, but of what I would be experiencing now as a being. Because what I experience myself to be now is so entirely different than what I experienced myself to be 16 years ago. Not just that I had a younger body and all that. I mean, a, a profound change in the universe, in what I see in the world, what I see in myself, what I feel, how I deal with every situation that comes up. And there was no way, and if somebody said to me in 1963, you don't even begin to know what your life's going to be about. You have no idea who you are. I had already written the scenario then, and that scenario was a crock. It never had anything to do with how it turned out. And since then, I have written hundreds of scenarios, and they've all been wrong. And there comes a point where you just stop writing scenarios, or at least you stop taking them so seriously. Like a scenario, I'm a mother, and then your child is gone, and suddenly you're not a mother. Or I'm a wife or a husband, and suddenly your partners are separated. Or I'm healthy, and suddenly you find out you have cancer. 
Scenario, let go, new scenario, new scenario, new scenario, new scenario. And all the time behind it is lurking just this unfolding of law. Just the working out of stuff. And sometimes when you're very quiet inside, at least for me, when I'm very quiet, I can almost see the clock ticking. I can almost see it working. I can almost see how many times I have to go through this. I mean, this is beautiful, but if it's something, it's still something, and I got to keep going through it until it isn't anything. And if I don't do it this life, I'll do it in another life. The situation you are in at this moment, whatever it is, whatever it is, this is one that's so hard for people to hear, for me to hear, so easy to forget. The situation you are in at this moment, whatever it is, is absolutely perfect. There is no error. You're sure you got it right. You didn't screw up on the computer. Aren't I supposed to be at this point? Aren't I supposed to be enlightened and young and virile having taken on a new body? What are you doing to me? Would you check the computer, please? No, there's no error. I mean, it boggles the mind to see billions of beings having billions of life situations every moment, and it all is within law. I mean, no computer that you can even conceive of can keep it that exquisite. And yet there it is. That Mogolana's life, no matter how weird it seemed that this incredibly high being who could leap up in the sky, go through keyholes, was still pounded to death by a highwayman. What an uninteresting way to die. And yet it was just working out of karma. And if I understand the game, that as you get lighter and clearer and less attached, you create less and less new karma. That karma is created by every action that has attachment to it, or desire, or clinging, or intent. And finally, you stop needing to act out of your desires. The desires are there, and you're here, and action happens. And then new karma stops being created, and all that results is old karma just runs off. And very often you see beings who finished, who aren't around except for maybe a thread. And all that's there is this old karma running off, like Mogolana the Great. I have no idea about my guru. Was he beyond karma? Was he working out old karma? Was he finished? How would I know? You only see what you can see. I wouldn't know one if I stepped on it. I know that I've stopped asking about myself, when will I get enlightened? I've stopped counting and measuring. It's just an unfolding, and I'm just a part of a process, and I have a lot of patience now. 
And I am merely seeing that the means and the ends are all interwoven. It's just a mosaic that's just unfolding before my eye. And the quieter I get and the lighter I get, the more it all gets clear. Now, um, I want to read you this story from this book. Um, this story concerns a healing of a certain kind. And it concerns a Western physician named Larry Brilliant and his wife, Girija. And this shows a way how my guru worked indirectly, but it also, if you look at it from another angle, it shows you how events that seem one thing really can be understood on so many levels to be something entirely different. And it kind of gives you a little flavor about what miracles, how they play into the whole dance. And it may give you a little suspicion that your life isn't quite how it seems, since all of us are in this same relationship to the spirit, although we may not consciously carry on the dialogue this way. So relax and listen to this story. The first thing he said to us as we walked in and sat down was, Doctor, Doctor America, how much money do you have? I said, oh, Maharaji, I have $500. No, no, really, how much money do you have? I insisted this was all I had. He says, yes, yes, that's in India, but how much money do you have in America? I thought about it, and I confessed to being a bit concerned that this was an appeal for him, from him for money for some temple. And I said, I only have $500 back in America, which was true. Then I hastened to add, but I also have a very big debt from medical school. I had to borrow a lot of money to go through medical school. And even though I have $1,000, I owe a lot more than that. He said, what? You have no money? You are no doctor. It sounded exactly like something my mother would say. He looked at me and laughed and said, you are no doctor, you are no doctor, you are no doctor, you are no doctor, you are no doctor. I didn't understand what he was saying. Then he said, you're going to give vaccinations. You will go to the villages and give vaccinations. You want me to give a shot to someone here, I asked. I didn't understand what he was instructing me to do. Everybody else seemed to understand except me. Finally, he looked at me and he said, Dr. America, UNO doctor, United Nations Organization doctor. You and you are no doctor, you are no doctor, you are no doctor. You will work for the United Nations. You're going to go to villages and give vaccinations. In fact, I had made a very casual inquiry of some acquaintances who worked for WHO, the World Health Organization, but they replied that WHO was not hiring anyone. Meanwhile, over the next few weeks, Maharaji was always asking me, did you get your job? I'd always say no, Maharaji, and quickly drop the subject. One day, Maharaji said to me, go to WHO, you'll get your job. So I went to the WHO offices in New Delhi and saw the man to whom I had originally spoken. He was very friendly, but pointed out that WHO had no openings. And in any case, they only hired expert consultants from medical schools and institutions outside India. Then he said, but there is one program. If they ever could do anything, it would be really nice, but it's doubtful they'll be able to achieve their goal because it's so difficult. It's the smallpox program. The Indian government right now is adamantly against expanding the WHO program to fight smallpox. They have other problems, such as malaria and family planning. Smallpox is not their highest priority, but I'll take you to see the French doctor, Nicole Grasset, who directs that program. We made an appointment to see her, and then I returned to the home of two of Maharaji's devotees, borrowed the man's suit, and bought a terrible tie. I tied my hair into a ponytail and hid it under a white shirt. 
My costume was bizarre and ill-fitting, and Nicola realized at once that I was just another hippie. She said, I'm sorry, we really don't have a job, but it's nice to meet you. So I went back to Maharaji, and he again asked, did you get your job? I said, no, Maharaji, let's just cut this out. Two more weeks passed, and Maharaji looked at me and said, go back to who? I took the bus, train, bus, rickshaw trip back to who? Once more, I talked to my acquaintance, Ned, and at this time, I filled out a different type of form, typed in it a bit more properly, and sent it in and spoke with Nicole on the phone. Of course, there was no job. The next week, Maharaji asked if I got my job and then asked me to call Nicole. It was getting embarrassing. This time, I called her from Vrindaban. Again, she told me there was no expansion of the smallpox program, no possibility of hiring American doctors, but she thanked me for my continued interest in her work. Sometime later, Maharaji called me and said, immediately, go to who? <laughs> I took a train and went immediately to who. When I walked in the door, there was another man there. He said to me, what are you doing here? I gave my usual line, I've come to who to work for the smallpox program. My guru told me I would work for who? I went up to Ned's office again and telephoned Nicole. She said there was still no expansion of the smallpox program, but that something had happened that day. The chief of the global smallpox program had come from Geneva. She suggested I come to meet him. I went to meet him, and of course, he was that man in the doorway whom I just told I'd be working for who. And it was his program I was going to work for. He interviewed me and wrote a note for the record. This young man seems like to like foreign cultures and will probably do very good international work someday. However, he has no experience in public health, no training past internship. I wish him good luck in the future. We have no job for him. What he said to me was that who could not hire me for several reasons. First, I had no public health training. I had never even seen a case of smallpox. Second, because of political tensions, the Indian government preferred at that time not to have Americans working in India. Third, they had not yet really geared up the program for smallpox eradication in India. Smallpox had been eradicated in all but four countries, but the strategy was to work on the other three first, then come to India. That was it. He added there was a smallpox program in Pakistan. If that interested me, I had best give it some more thought. I paused and sheepishly said, I'll have to ask my guru. I went back to Maharaji. When he asked me if I got the job, I said, no, but there's a possibility of a job in Pakistan. He yelled, nay. I said, India. So I telephoned back to Who and told Nicole my guru insisted I work for Who in India. <laughs> that must have amused her, but she was polite as usual and thanked me for calling. After two months of this, Garija and I were exhausted and frustrated. We decided to take a vacation from it all in Kashmir. As we were leaving the ashram, I called Nicole at Who who told, we, and told her our plans. If by any chance a job comes through, I said, please call me in Srinagar. You know, she said, a very strange thing happened, just happened. I suddenly had this inspiration. I don't know, maybe it's your guru or something like that. But can you write? Yes, I said, I've edited some medical journals. Well, you know, we can't hire you as a smallpox doctor, but if you're really that determined to work for who, maybe I could hire you as an administrative assistant. Look, anything. Maharaji said, I'm going to work for you, and I'm going to go to villages and give injections. He's never been wrong. She changed my application from that of a doctor to that of an administrative assistant and sent a telegram to D.A. Henderson, the program chief in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm going to hire Brilliant. She suddenly really wanted to hire me and put the application through. Still, who had not created a post for her unit? After our vacation in Kashmir, we returned to Kenchi and Maharaji's first smiling question, did you get your job yet? No, Maharaji, it's really very complicated. 
Again, he had me go back to Delhi. It was 10 times now I'd gone back and forth from the mountains, like a yo-yo, each time putting on barman's suit and that awful tie. When I got to who I found my application as administrative assistant had been approved, but I would still have to pass a security clearance. Every American working for who must have one. When I got that piece of paper for security clearance, I knew this was the end of the game. There seemed no chance in the world I could get a security clearance. We had been part of the left-wing anti-war movement in the States. I'd been a leader of the radical organization, the Medical Committee for Human Rights. There was absolutely no chance for security clearance. I came back to Kenshi feeling terrible. I explained all this to Maharaji and said that there have been a lot of stumbling blocks up till now, but this was the last straw. Maharaji said, oh, who is the person who's supposed to give you this job? I couldn't remember precisely who, but I mentioned that Henderson was the boss. Maharaji pretended to be a real fakir. He sat up straight, he put his blanketed up arm before his face and asked, how do you spell his name? <laughs> I started spelling it, wait, he said, and then he began repeating the letters slowly in a deep voice, H-E. He peeked out at me through his fingers, which were covering his face, laughing all the time. He continued spelling the name and he pretended to go into a trance, always peeking at me to be sure I was watching and properly impressed, but giggling as he did so. At the same time, in Geneva, Dr. Henderson was attending a cocktail party at the American Embassy. The American ambassador and the Surgeon General were there. The Surgeon General asked Henderson how the smallpox eradication program was going. Great, said Henderson. We have 34 countries cleared and only four left. Are all the countries helping you, asked the Surgeon General. Yes, Russia's given us vaccines. Sweden's given us a lot of money. All the countries are helping. The Surgeon General asked, what about America? What are we giving you? Well, said Henderson, an expert in getting support for his program, not so much. What do you need? Henderson replied, I don't know how I got into this and I don't know why we're doing it, but we want to hire this young American doctor who's been living in an ashram in India. We've never done anything like that before and the kid can't get a security clearance. The Surgeon General of the United States said, security clearance, what's he need that for? Henderson replied, every American in order to work for the United Nations has to have a security clearance. The Surgeon General said, I didn't know that, who gives him the clearance? Henderson said, you do. I do. Give me a napkin and tell me what the kid's name is. He took a cocktail napkin and wrote, brilliant, okay to start work, and signed it. He gave the napkin to Henderson, who telegraphed who in New Delhi that I'd been cleared to work. The next morning, Maharaji called us into his, it was a little room we called his office. He'd sit on his wooden table and he had bars in the windows and he'd look out at us and scowl. He was being too nice, laughing and smiling. He had tea and jalebis brought in and he hugged us. We were rubbing his feet, it was so blissful. Then Maharaji said, okay, time for you to go. We thought he meant leave the ashram. We stood up and pradamed and walked out and around the corner, just as we approached the gate to the ashram, the postman came with a telegram from New Delhi. You have received US security clearance, come immediately to who New Delhi to begin work. So I went to who and began work as an administrative assistant. During the week, I worked in Delhi, and on the weekends, we came to the ashram to be with Maharaji. I remember one darshan in the back of Kenshi, where we talked for three hours about smallpox. 
It was the most horrid disease I'd ever seen. He told me everything about it, where it was located in India, where the bad epidemics were, what the seasons were, what the transmission cycle was, what places we'd have trouble with, everything about the epidemiology. He knew much more than I knew, even if I'd, after I'd worked with WHO for three months. I asked him, will smallpox be eradicated? I remember his answer because I wrote it down. Smallpox will be eradicated. This is God's gift to mankind because of the hard work of dedicated medical scientists. At the WHO office, I was occasionally assigned to write up the operational plan since my native language was English. Maharaji would help to organize the whole plan. Because my source of information about conditions in India was, well, so direct, shall we say, and because Maharaji's advice was so good, I began to get more and more responsibility. Still, after about a month of this, I was not feeling that Maharaji's prediction had come true because I still wasn't going to the village to give vaccinations. There was no program. The project slowly moved to the point we were about to go into the field. Six September was to be the first month. Some of the staff would go into the field, but not me, of course, since I was an administrative assistant. However, it so happened that two of the Russian doctors who were to be assigned to an area where Maharaji had lived for a long period were held up by Soviet government formalities. There was this blank spot on the map and there was just nobody except me who could be sent there. I was sent out of the office and into the villages. The jeep that Girija and I drove had a big picture of Maharaji on the dashboard. Often we, we, we'd go into a civil surgeon's office and tell him about the importance of a serious smallpox program. He would say, yes, yes, thank you for coming. Now please leave, I've got so many other problems. Then because of Indian courtesy, he might walk us out to a jeep and he'd see Maharaji's picture in the dashboard and ask why we had it there. Oh, I'd say, he's my guru. He told to go to work for the United Nations. He told me smallpox would be eradicated. He told me it's God's gift to mankind. Then the civil surgeon might say, oh, come back into my office, take tea. Since smallpox is going to be eradicated, how shall we get organized? It kept happening like that. Often skeptical who or Indian officials said to me, look, you understand India, you may eradicate smallpox everywhere else, but you know India will never eradicate smallpox, it's just not possible. But when they heard what Maharaji had said, the Indian officials would often change their opinions. Soon we were assigned to areas that were selected because of the negative attitude of the local doctors. We talked about Maharaji's predictions. Some of the officials remembered when the Chinese invaded India in 62 and Maharaji said the Chinese troops would go back to China by themselves. So the doctors would help us, they changed their attitudes. The effect of this was that although I knew very little about smallpox or the UN system, every time I was sent to a difficult area through Maharaji's grace, smallpox would disappear. Perhaps it was just in Uttar Pradesh, but in January they sent me to a remote part of Madhya Pradesh Amrakantak. Nearly everyone in the district had known Maharaji and when they learned he had said smallpox would be eradicated, they cooperated, okay, etc. It took only two years of intense effort for the, our team to conquer smallpox in all of India. When we started in 1974, there were 180,000 cases with 30,000 deaths in, in only one year. A total of 400 epidemiologists from 30 different countries and 100,000 Indian workers worked in a frenzy of compassion and commitment. Everyone in India had said it could never be done, even many WHO officials. But Maharaji said it could be done. He said it was God's gift to mankind, and it was. Now, is it all as it seems or not? 
mean, you could see Larry's life as merely a set of chance factors. You could explain that whole thing away. But if you allow the possibility that in Larry's life there was what might be called divine intercession, why would you allow it in Larry's life and not in yours? Well, because you don't know any divine intercessor, interceding. Do you think it has anything to do with knowing such a being? I don't. I don't even think that Maharaji was anything but a middleman in that process. You could say, well, that was all chance, the way he looked through his fingers and at that moment the Surgeon General and Henderson are talking in Switzerland. One day around midnight, Maharaji comes to a house. There's an old couple there and they have two cots. They're very poor and he comes and he says, I'm very tired. Their son is in Burma fighting in the war. They say, he says, I'm very tired. I want to sleep. Get out. Get out of your bed. They get out of the bed and he lies down. He starts to snore and toss and turn and they sit all night watching him. Around four in the morning, he gets up and he says, he takes the sheet and he folds it over and it's got something in it. And he says to the man, here, take this and throw it in the river. Don't let anybody see it and don't you look inside. Don't let anybody see it because they'll put you in jail. And the man took it and went to the river and as he was going, he felt inside and he felt that inside were bullets. And he threw it in the river. Came back and Maharaj, he said, okay, I'm going, see you all. And he left. He said, your son will be home and I'll leave soon. That'll be nice. Say hello to him for me. Three months later, the son came home and in telling about his war stories, said, you know, something happened to me. One night, we, got, we made a mistake in our rooting and we got behind the enemy lines and the enemy turned on us and they were shooting at us and I found a very narrow trench and they were shooting all over around and the bullets kept going by my head. And at four o'clock in the morning, our troops caught up and came and to save us and I was the only one left alive. And that night was exactly the night Maharaji visited the house. Okay. Now I take a story like that and I think, boy, what showbiz. You know, I mean, it didn't have to be done like that. It's pretty schmaltzy, isn't it? But I think when I tell you that story and when I think about that story, just like the D.A. Henderson and the cocktail napkin, how does it change the meaning of the events of my life? Does it possibly suggest that everything that seems to be the way it seems isn't? You understand what I'm, the issue I'm raising? See, there is a certain function of miracles And miracles may merely be that you're given a view into a plane of reality that usually you don't have a view into because miracles are all within laws also. I don't feel that Maharaji stepped out of karma. I think he worked within the boundaries of karma. And I don't exactly understand how that happens. I once had a long dialogue with Maharaji. Long means two sentences. Because it seemed to me that Maharaji always worked within law. And yet, within Guru Kripa, the method of devotion to the Guru, everybody talks about the grace of the Guru. And you ask Maharaji for his grace to help you. And everybody says, oh, he did this for me and he did that for me. And I said to Maharaji, Maharaji, aren't grace and karma the same thing? 
And his answer was, I can't answer that in public. And he never answered it for me. There is a way of looking at the events of your life as all just unfolding grace. You could also look at it as unfolding karma. You see, it was that woman's karma that she go through all that stuff. It was grace that she meet Manindra and start to awaken so that she could, after years of hell in concentration camps, end up peaceful and serene. But the fact that that grace occurred at that time was her good karma. So it's only a set of labels, a way you're standing, how you label it. There isn't one bit of suffering you have gone through in your life that isn't working out something out of the past and if seen that way, a vehicle to get free of being lost in the melodrama. There's not one single event of suffering. It's as if the events that you see in your physical plane life are just the top of an iceberg that is so thick and deep and rich and interwoven and interpenetrable. Like you and I meeting, do you think it's for the first time or the tenth time or the thousandth time? Do you sense a familiarity in the situation? Do any of you have a feeling when we meet again and again that we're not really, we're just doing it again or we're on a continuous process that spreads out over vast times? If you could see your own life as just another chapter in the unfolding of a dance, how light it gets, how light, how playful. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.